My guest today is the VP of Sales, Amiya at Humu. Here's what some of his colleagues say about him. Rico's relationship management is outstanding. He possesses a unique cultural mindset that allows him to connect with anyone on his team and is able to build bridges between employees who hail from different cultures. Here's another one. Rico is a quick thinker and is one of the most analytical minds I've ever encountered. And when under pressure, he's able to make decisions that are well thought out and executes on them flawlessly. Rico's guidance and leadership continue to make outstanding ripples as his team have also gone on to becoming leaders and influencers in the mobile tech industry. Rico Whitey, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure, Rico. Could you start by telling me a little bit about where you grew up, Rico, and what sort of a childhood that that was? Yeah, of course. I'm Swiss, born and raised here in near Zurich, actually near Zurich Airport, which had, in my point of view, <laughs> a lot of influence on what happens throughout my, my, my career as well. I think when you think of Swiss people, a lot of people see me as a very Swiss guy, I think within Switzerland. I'm not. We're, of course, thinking things in a structured and neutral way. We're known to, to be maybe a little bit conservative and slower in, in terms of decision-making. I think yeah. I see myself growing up as a very innovative entrepreneurial person. And my dad had his own company, a small company, and that kind of had a big influence on how I grew up and everything. I'm mm. curious, one of the comments, Rico, was around the cultural mindset. And you said you grew up in Switzerland. Was that Swiss background something that encouraged that? Because a lot of companies headquartered in Switzerland. So I, and, and I know you have a strong cultural mix and a number of different mm -hmm. languages in Switzerland. Was that where that came from or was it something that came later when you traveled a lot and met people from outside your own culture? I think a lot of our education, the, a lot of our educational system is built in a way that we are always looking outside. When you look at Swiss news, they're not super interesting on what's happening on the inside, but often we look very outward. Pros and cons of being a small country, but then Within the country, as you might know, we have four official languages and in sort of the boarding areas are usually closer to the country that, that is close. The closer part of France speaks French, the closer part of German speaks German and so forth. And I think throughout also our mandatory military service, they make sure that we're always mixing people across the region, across the country. And that, I think that sort of starts us off with a, in school and then later on with that kind of mindset. And later on, I think. What I always enjoyed living close to the airport is to, to see my, actually my neighbors were all former Swiss air pilots and captains. So I saw them go away. And I think that's where it was my longing. Most of my wanderlust started. We have a German term for that. I'm not sure if it's exactly a synonym, but we call it Fernweh, as in like the longing for the yeah. abroad. Yes. And we're, I think the intercultural curiosity came from, from the Swiss background, but then afterwards, you know. I, I realized how, how much more diversity there is in the world when I went there and lived there. That's really interesting. Fernweh. I've never heard, of, I've heard of Heimweh, which, right, yeah. is homesickness. I've Homes never heard. We have the opposite. I've never heard. I've never yeah, heard the opposite, of the opposite. homesickness. <laughs> That's fascinating because I remember as a kid, obviously, <laughs> stands without saying pre-internet days. And... I had this fascination with Switzerland and Austria, and I, I don't know, it was the mountains, or maybe I'd seen some movies that fascinated me. And I used to write away to the Swiss embassy in Dublin and the Austrian embassy and German one too, and they'd send me maps and pictures. And I, my bedroom wall was festooned with these things. Oh, wow. 
And I, and it was just, again, as soon as I could travel, that's where I went. And there's this Switzerland, certainly in, in, in my mind growing up, had this sense of this idyllic picture postcard, perfect plate, fresh air, the Alps. Was it like that? I'm just curious to know what your, maybe some of your happy memories growing up, or is this just Hollywood? No, no. And what I'm going to say is, uh, is truthful, but maybe influence a little bit about the Swiss tourism industry. It is like that. During the pandemic, I think a lot of Swiss rediscovered their home again, because nobody could travel and they basically stayed within. It's, I was super grateful. It was a luxury to live in a country that people usually travel to, and we could basically had it to ourselves for a while. You can be like that. The majority of Swiss still live in the bigger cities, global scale, their villages, right? they're really small and they can be very, they have their own problems. When you have a lot of people in one place, you know, it's maybe sometimes not as, as picturesque as you would imagine, but you know, it is true and it's beautiful to, to travel within, even within your own country. <laughs> yeah, no, it certainly is. As I've been there a few times. My first time was, a, I was interrailing and I think my impression was different then because you're smelly. You're sleeping overnight on trains. <laughs> it's not the great, perfect place to go on a budget. That's for sure. No, 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 certainly not at any time. But anyway, no, fabulous. And I found people were very open, very friendly. I want to go back. You said about your father and influence on, he had a small SME type business. Talk to me a little bit about that and the influence. And also, I'm really interested in maybe some of the characteristics and traits and values that you possess now and are, that are very important to you that came from that experience? For me, I would say a lot of my colleagues, and maybe I'm jumping a bit ahead into university, but a lot of my colleagues there went to, I did a business degree at Swiss Business School, and a lot of my colleagues would follow into, let's say, a career at UBS or a career at a big consultancy firm. For me, that was never really an option. I think, I think I've always wanted to basically create something or influence something on a smaller scale. I felt like joining a big organization wouldn't allow me to have such a big impact. And when I saw my father, what they were doing, as I said, it's, it was a small business, but they, they were struggling, hustling, like on a very frequent basis, but were successful at doing so at being agile at beating sort of the big companies by, by being the flexible forthcoming servicer that they were, I was, a, was an electrical engineering company. And for me, I think that's definitely one thing that I took from that. He always had a, yeah, let's do this. Let's go attitude, even in his personal life, like from his, from if I had a school project or something like that, he would, he would have a solution within like minutes that I could, couldn't even have thought of. He was also crafting a little bit of an inventor, crafter, did model airplanes and a lot of things like that. I, the soldering iron was one, was something that I got. <laughs> Got uh, acquainted very early in my life. Later on, I would say what I'm still thinking about a lot uh, is his sort of day schedule. He was never home when I got up, like he was already at the office and, you know, good or bad, he didn't have, I'm not sure what the current research says, but I think he definitely did not get enough sleep. That might've been the company, sort of the, the psychology behind running a company and having employees, et cetera. Um, but he also always said, I, I don't need a lot of sleep. He was always already gone, like would read the newspaper and have his first coffee in the office. Uh, but then take a nap at lunch, which 
I don't do, I can't take naps, uh, but I, I, I'm definitely an early riser as, as, as he is. I think these are two things. The early bird catches the stone kind of attitude combined with flexibility, agility, that, uh, and that, that didn't really fit into, let's say, a, a large Swiss conservative old Swiss big company. Might change today. I'm certainly with him on the nap thing. I, there's nothing as nice as nap. <laughs> my I, problem is I tend to have them too late in the evening and then it spoils my sleep. But, oh, I, it, yeah. it, it spoils my whole day if I take a nap. Uh, really? I, I, really, yeah. If I take a nap, even if it's like 15, 15 minutes, yeah. my body really, uh, maybe I need to do it more often. Maybe somebody has a tip on what to do, but I get really cranky. I, it's definitely, it's just <laughs> not productive. I'm less productive if I take a nap. So I'd rather go to bed early. That's my solution to it. Yeah, yeah. No, and everybody has to figure out their own rhythm in these things, for sure. Everybody's different. Mm -hmm. uh, and so talk to me then a little bit about the your, the university in terms of what I'm interested in is, were you always of that mind that you were going to be an entrepreneur, be a business person, work in sales, or was it something you developed later on? Because I know you said you mentioned the business course that you did and your colleagues would go off to these consulting companies. Yeah. And you seem to have this presence of mind that's, I think most people at that age don't know what they want to do. That's what I'm fascinated. About. I think, well, yeah, I think that's a, it's a very good observation. I think at the time I did not know what I wanted to do within business, just because maybe also our education system doesn't really prepare you to what kind of mm -hmm. jobs are out there, to be honest. I did, it's called, it was called like old languages, high school diploma, which included six and a half years of Latin, maybe not the best use of my time. I could definitely, could have definitely learned Spanish or Italian in the same, sort of with the same amount of time. Now I feel a lot more flexible linguistically when I hear and speak between switching between French and Portuguese and Italian. I don't speak those languages perfectly, but they give you, Latin gives you a great solid foundation. I'll give, give that to them. Um, I threw out all courses. I was extremely interested in, in everything on the science side, but didn't want to do the deep math that all my my classmates loved to do. Mm. And it was the time of when the internet was really just coming into our homes in the nineties. And like many others, we, a friend of mine, the, a buddy of mine and I started to program websites. I was really interested in creating mobile websites once that protocol, I'm not sure if you remember, came out. There's a lot of different things that happened during that time that are super exciting. I enjoyed the part of that to get maybe solutions out there, making websites for, we, we did a website for actually a job portal for childcare. And it was a tricky thing at that time to do. It wasn't just a website with your address on it. Like the original websites usually were just like a business card. And through that, I knew I wanted to do something in business, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. And rightly, a lot of people say, if you go study business, you don't know yet what you really want. And I think that was definitely applied for me within business, but sales in retrospect was definitely the right choice as my career got in somehow I ended up where I belong. Yeah, I think having that background can be an enormous advantage to coming from a family, running a business. I do think you grow up thinking differently. I didn't have that. My father was a woodwork teacher. My mother worked at home and worked at a bookshop and did some part-time work. And I found that as I went through university and did, I did IT and I just, I was always into the technology, never looked at the opportunity, never thought about the application. I remember in college doing this encryption program where you had to send across TC. This was just pre-internet over TCP IP and encrypt. And I'm like, 
them back. I could have made a fortune with that. And I just saw it as an exercise. Never thought. I'm wondering, I guess I'm wondering rather than stating that with a background in business, does it make you think differently about the world? Are you always looking externally? See, what can I do with this? Because that's what a business person is always mm. doing is, what can I do with this? How can I change things? Yeah, too far too often. Like I, I call them brain farts uh, because I often walk around and basically say, okay, so this business could do this and that and will be a lot more successful. Of course, I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure that they thought through this and there's the way they're doing it today might be actually better. But you're right. Like sometimes you, you stumble across something where you know, okay, this is this new technology that just came out and you've seen so, several applications that really work well. Mm. But then there's these other, maybe the industry, another type of business that hasn't maybe heard of it or experimented with it. And it would basically create a completely new company. So that, yeah, that happens a lot. I yeah. started out a couple of companies as well myself. It's a beautiful thing, but you really need the right team, the right timing and everything to pull through. And I admire any entrepreneur that, that sticks through several years to then make something happen. Yeah. No, I don't think anybody can prepare you for how difficult it is. It always looks easy when yeah. you're starting, but ooh. 100%. Yeah. Tell me, Rico, what motivates you most? For me, I think it's definitely building a, building something that could be with my hands, could also be for a business. And I've made it my profession to work in sales, to work with companies that are on a expansion route that are basically not always already super established, where you need to put in the work to build a brand, to basically inspire clients or prospects to get a partnership going. That's, I think, in, in essence, throughout my whole career is what made me most excited. If I had something that was easy to sell, and if you're in that situation, go do it. I'm not jealous. It's a moment where I get a little bit complacent. And for me, it's what really motivates me is the, the difficult, tricky, complex part. And I guess that's also why I ended up in enterprise sales. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm wondering if people think enough about that when they're going into a sales role. Do they think about what kind of client do I want to work with? Who's going to inspire me? Who's going to give me a sense of energy that I can bring to the job? Right. The wrong environment, you said, sales come by easy. For some people, that's perfect. That's all they want. For others, that would just leave you numb at the end of the day. It's nothing to Yeah, I fully agree. I, some, sometimes I don't even think about B2B or B2C, right? I feel like often sales is just thrown into one bucket. And where, let's put B2C aside and focus on B2B, within there, fully agree with you, like where often where there's a lack of distinction for me is first and foremost of in the size, let's say whether it's more transactional sales or more complex sales, but then furthermore, how to get there and what kind of people you're interacting with. And it's not necessarily the product, it's really the buyer, right? Who, mm. who is buying? Is that a fit for my style is often left aside. And I think companies, sales leaders, recruiters definitely have to carve out what is the right type of customer segment and sales type that we need to bring together. Don't get me wrong here. Like I, I fully believe in diverse teams. There's no right style for any client, right? But I feel it's a mindset thing and exactly what kind of buying process of buying cycle are my clients going through and I'm, am I willing and motivated to do that specifically? Yeah, no, it is. It's, I'm thinking it through as you're talking about and it's this idea of a, the ideal ICP and 
this is a sort of a reverse approach on that. It's rather than saying, who's my ICP? It's more than that. It's what type of environment do they work in? What do they bring to that personality style? It's again, it's more than that. It's fascinating. Maybe, I'm thinking real time here. Maybe, maybe as part of sort of one, one of my pivotal moments in my career was when I moved back to, back to Asia. So I spent there some time in early 2000s in Taiwan, in China, and then studied in Singapore and anyway, came back to Switzerland, finished my studies. And then once I went back and already had a few years of sales in my bag, I, it came to me there, very obvious, very obvious conclusion is that, yeah, you can't sell in Asia the way you sell in Switzerland. But I never really thought, had thought about that because it was only selling in Switzerland. And then once you go from there and you start diving into these different cultures, nothing stops you from slicing things up even further within India. There's different styles on how to sell within India. It's like India's just not one country, China the same. There's Beijing and Shanghai are different. Hong Kong is different. East, no matter where you go. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's a difference between New Zealand and Australia on how to sell there. So from that angle, if you then start to think enterprise, global teams that are in a complex sale, you, there is no right or wrong, but within every team, you need to know who you're, who's buying, right? And within every team, it's a puzzle piece of different personalities and different buying behaviors. It's not always just an ideal customer profile that buys from you, right? It's a group of people that have their own way of buying. No, makes sense. Makes sense. I think people need to think more about that. You're right. Because I think that's where often the, that fit has to take place first. Then there's a product to problem fit as well. Forget about that bit. Of course, of course, under the assumption that they want to buy. Well, once of course. That process. <laughs> yeah. Once yeah. that process. Yeah. It, it's important yeah. to think about that. Yeah. Wanted to ask you a little bit about your journey from sales into leadership. What that was like for you. Talk to me about some of the speed bumps you ran into along the way. What made the transition difficult? If indeed it did. I'm just curious. I was an individual contributor all the way in my career until I, I actually was selling in APAC uh, for the region. I started in Asia to sell into Europe and then basically made a switch. And from there, I feel like my first, I wasn't, I was working in startups and wasn't necessarily trained as a manager, as you usually go in startups or as it maybe shouldn't be anywhere. So I think I had to learn a couple of lessons while I was also in a cultural melting pot in Singapore, where you'd have a lot of different kind of types of cultures and very, we had a very direct and I think open feedback culture, which was extremely helpful. So very quickly, I realized what kind of behaviors I have as a Swiss, which were, which are completely okay over here. That wouldn't be over there. And I'll give you an example. I'm not sure if you do this too, but let's say you join a Zoom call, you basically in a virtual setting or old school in an office setting and somebody walks up to you and you're still in a thought, what would you do? If somebody walks up to you and you're in a thought. So if you, you want to finish up something, just two seconds, what do you oh, do? Yeah, yeah. You just say, I'll be with you in a moment. You do this. Right? Yeah. And my colleagues started pointing out like, hey, this is to totally rude. You can't do this. So. Okay. Uh, <laughs> You know, to imagine what it means. <laughs> I, no, I, I don't think, I don't, I, I think it's more the, no, I'm not here for you. Oh, I got you. It's got you. It's not like a finger. It's more, it's okay. No, not, nothing bad, but it's rude in terms of as a manager, not to be And I had to, for example, learn there that you'd always, 
drop what are you doing? <laughs> Basically, it's, it's so small things like that. Over time, I feel in sales, particularly, it's definitely something that comes also with success. If you're building something out and you have a growing team, you'll learn a lot on hiring, how you structure the team. And I think there's tons of lessons in there, basically, especially if you're restricted in a multicultural setting. And I'm sorry that I go always go back to this intercultural differences, but same thing in Europe. If you hire 20, 20 people in the UK, uh, salespeople in, a, in an enterprise setting, I'm pretty sure that the UK itself would be too small to, or may, might be too small for 20 people. So you start venturing out and start expanding into other markets and hire maybe people that know how to sell in Germany or know how to sell in France. So as you do that, you're creating additional issues organizationally and also managerial-wise, product-marketing-wise. So there's a lot, lot of complexity, complexity that comes with that expansion. And I, very early on, I was given the opportunity to think through what would actually, what it would mean to build out a business in Asia that focuses not on Singapore because it's far too small as a market very often. And you suddenly have to venture into these big countries that maybe would even allow for a separate office, a separate team and a separate whole expansion business plan by itself. So from a leadership perspective in sales, I feel like going back into a larger organization with let's say a, a larger, let's say more homogenous, let's say market or set market segment, mm. I can benefit from, from that diversity that I've learned early on, because nowadays today in these global settings, you have the same issues and same challenges with every single client. When you go into those, it gave me a lot of flexibility, again, agility in, in that regard. What about when it came to people side of things and maybe your own sense of one of the things that I often hear from leaders is they struggle to let go of being a rep, try to, they, they, they straddle both those roles for way too long. And I'm just curious to know what your experience in that context was like. Yeah. It's one of the most important rules I have for myself is I don't want to change anyone's sales style. I think that's where. Initially, I struggled with. In the end, my definitely my style is not perfect. I feel like I'm a lot more introvert listener. I see myself more as helping the prospect to get to the point where I want them, compared to hard selling it into a story. And so sometimes I I observe these different types of sales reps, and I always have to focus on their strengths. That's definitely something. What, where can I help? rather than interject myself mm. into what they're doing. Like, how can I support them to get either better or to establish together the weaknesses where basically I say I can play my part to do that. That's one very important thing that helped me to let go. I think it's really tough or it was tough for me when your team is still small. So if you, let's say you're in a sales leadership, but you don't really have seven, eight people in your team yet, then I would say you definitely have the capacity to either, I feel like I, you have, it's a very good question. I feel like you shouldn't be selling yourself in my point of view, but rather open doors for them. I think that's one, one very important sort of strategy I've taken to fill, help fill that pipeline, right? So your job doesn't end if they're, if everything goes smoothly, but then again, I feel I, I really enjoy selling myself and that being on top and prove also once in a while that you're good at helps you with 
your team to not really out of respect, but just in general that you're working together with them. It could be like a cold day together with them, right? It could be putting up your sleeves and help for an event and get drive people there. So I think that's just from a team building perspective and, and it's a great thing. And for myself, it gives me, it makes me feel a little bit like an individual contributor again. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really interesting because I think as a leader, you can bring a lot more value early on in the process than is often the case where maybe a rep will bring in their manager at the end. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's to rescue something that's, and it's too late. There's very little mm -hmm. you could do at that stage. Mm -hmm. Far better. That's yeah. It's interesting. Tell me. I know you said your father was an inspiration to you. Who else would you, you look back in your career and say that person was inspired me and why? I feel a lot of people I focus over time for a certain, for a specific reason. But one person I've looked up to a lot is Roger Federer. I mean, as a Swiss, of course, like we have to, our next to Toblerone, the second most important thing that people know about. <laughs> I have three uh, bars of Toblerone on top of the fridge at home. My daughter brought me home recently. <laughs> Perfect. And do you know what it is? Toblerone are so clever with this. You know where they sell it? They sell it in the airport for people who want to bring something home but have forgotten to buy a present. They go in and they go, Toblerone, that'll do. Well, the quick thing, maybe you want to cut this out, but afterwards go to your Toblerone bar and look at the logo, sort of them, the Matterhorn. If you have a close look, there's a bear inside the Matterhorn. A bear. Uh, yeah, there's a bear. Inside I won't cut that out. So That's, everybody yeah. needs to hear that. That's I mean, yeah. <laughs> interesting. I, the first thing second I thing, do at lunchtime. The second thing about Toblerone, it you originally came for the company Tobler, and they wanted to call their premium chocolate Tobler One, but nobody in Switzerland spoke English, so they just called it Toblerone. Just another fun fact about well, that chocolate. Fact, yeah. <laughs> Back to Roger Federer. I feel yeah. like he's, uh, although he's a tiring, uh, the reason I look up to him is he made this, his craft look so easy. And although he was definitely one of the best that ever played that sport, he remained humble even in the peak years. I always appreciated that and that he also took time with the fans or also took time with, let's say, the smaller Swiss media outlets that definitely wouldn't maybe give him that much attention compared to, to, to BBC or others. And maybe the other one, I was thinking about this before, what, who else I look up to and I feel the other person is Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm not sure if you know him. I do He's, know exactly who you're talking about. Why, why him? I extremely enjoy how he can describe and tell stories about astronomy, the stars and the galaxies and make it sound so simple for anyone. Mm. Like I, I love the topic. Again, I don't really enjoy doing the math, following him, listening to him and how he breaks things down. And just from a storytelling perspective, he's, I feel a brilliant person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like his style. He, first of all, I think he's very personable, which helps. And then also he's able to, he's able to cut out all the complexity. He's able to match it to whomever his audience is. Right. Yeah. I think that's a real gift. And I think it's something in sales that we underestimate the importance of the ability to make the complex simple and help our prospects navigate through the process. 100%. And crank it up if you have somebody that knows what you're talking about on the other side. I think I feel that's often 
more evident where a conversation can go sour. It's more in your face when you do that than when you are too complex for your audience, then they basically just don't say anything, right? But then they go quiet. So you're totally right. You need to be able to adjust in many different ways. We yeah. have to do that in sales, but also in terms of complexity, it's definitely something I'd fully agree on. And I think he does that beautifully. And it's hard to know where the line is as well, because if you start too simple, you risk patronizing people. If you go too complex, they'll feel stupid and won't mm. say anything. And it's, yeah. I'd start listening first, have them talk to you about, about a topic and then you try to mirror the level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Tell me, when you think about the typical school curriculum, uh -huh. if you were a minister for education and you could make any one subject mandatory for kids going through school today, what would it be and why? Oh, wow. A couple, I think personal finances is definitely something that we should teach early in school. I admire countries that get engineering, the whole science side of education, a lot more weight in the curriculum early on, including programming. I think that's something that just helps you shape the way of thinking and that there is more than the more ways of approaching or different ways to approach a problem. But I feel like if. I'd go as far as if they, if I could only, if I could only pick one, I think we should teach people about relationships. Uh, in personal, you mean with intimate partners or relationships with the wider world? And your social, social skills on how, yeah. what's the right way to behave or I, I'm sorry, sorry. I said that there's of course no right way to behave, but sure. I feel like what's not okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, no, I, I understand. I understand. And no, nowadays I feel. It's always more like an invention when a school has to go in and say, okay, this is not okay. Yeah. So, and you could expand that a lot further into, into stress management, so how you can actually help each other. A lot of things that are going the wrong way, my point of view right now, globally in terms of politics and democracy, like there's a lot of this goes back to us not knowing exactly how to talk to each other anymore. Yeah. So that's where I maybe would start. But personal finances. For sure, too. So I'm really fascinated by this and I'm about to make a little detour if you're okay with it. Sure. But because you, you mentioned about the what's going wrong and we don't know how to talk to one another. And I'm wondering, are you coming from that perspective of, is it the lack of communication skills or is it more in terms of basic values and traits like tolerance, acceptance, compassion? I would say this is the latter, although you packed in several things in there, I would say it can be loaded with many different topics. You, you see this a lot in things that are happening at the workplace today as well around psychological safety, or when you go into well-being that we're there for each other, that it's okay to talk about certain things and that other people show you the compassion as well, be it work or not work-related, right? I think talking about so many different things that are happening right now, especially in this term of lot anxiety and a lot of moving parts, I would say, compared to 10 years ago, it's important that we can, we can open up and we can talk about this rather than not. I feel when it comes to the politics, political side in Switzerland, we, 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 we do also have similar tendencies of polarization and people that go really on the edges, but in many 
many ways, we appreciate the fact there's a multitude of opinions. There can be heated fights. There can be arguing that's totally okay. As long as we focus on the topic rather than on the people. And don't take it personal if somebody has a different opinion. And it's okay to have that opinion, in my point of view. So, you know, forget some radical views, of course. Even with even the radical ones, you can always argue in a certain way to say, it's good that we have that in a way. Maybe we don't support it at all. Some of it is illegal. Right. Yeah. No, no I, I think that's one of the things you're right. There was a lot of what I said in terms of unpack. Maybe I'd boil it down to something like, I think we can have a tendency to play the man and not the ball. And what we need to do more of is like you said, is play the, play the, play the perfect, ball, perfect metaphor. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's something we say in German. So, so, so the sports metaphor suits perfectly. We have the tendency to, even in a work environment, if somebody shows a presentation and you criticize the presentation, in some cultures, you're criticizing the person who created it. In German culture, you don't. You criticize the, the slide deck, right? So in, in many ways, yeah, perfect sports metaphor. I'll keep that in mind for my US colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then they've got American football. It's not the same. <laughs> uh, they do, yeah. they, they do oh, because, play the man in, because, their, in American football. You're right. They, by playing the man, they play the ball. <laughs> yes. So it, it might fall down. They might struggle with that one. Need to come uh, up. Then, of course, you'd have to say soccer as well because they don't understand football. Anyway. Fair enough. The one I wanted to ask you was because you mentioned at the very beginning, you mentioned national service. And it's something that's on my mind at the moment. <laughs> Just kidding. Because there's very few countries, excuse me, there's very few countries in Europe that have national service. I think there's about three of them that come to mind Switzerland, Denmark, and I think Finland. And it's contentious for a couple of reasons. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts on it are, if it's a good thing that particularly... It's contentious because it's only men get drafted. And in, in an age of equality, this is a topic that comes up now that's true equality. Why, it's, why is it only men who are put in... And you see this in Ukraine, it's men are prevented from leaving and so on. And, but I'm also looking at a population of younger men and... Uh, see a lot of them have no purpose in life, that that life has changed so much in the last few, say, two decades or three decades, that they're purple, that they lack purpose. And I'm just wondering if maybe service, active service would give them a sense of purpose and a sense of discipline. I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think in terms of quality, I would say it would be totally fine if they would open it up for everyone. You can, if you're if you're a woman and want to change the service, you can do this already today, but making it compulsory for everyone, I think would, wouldn't be that dramatic in my point of view. The reason I'm saying this is because, of course, we haven't been in war for a long time. We try to stay out of it as much as we can with our neutrality and basically have a defensive military to... Mm-hmm. You saw it in the Second World War, also to a certain extent, where we tried to defend our borders. Let's leave that war aside because we did also many things wrong during that war. But when it comes to the institution today, it's definitely a great school for discipline, for organ- organizing your workday. And the purpose that you mention often is not necessarily only the sort of f- focused on a machine of war. It's very much focused on creating a certain infrastructure of sorts that could be for natural disasters. Or we often, like our ski races, you see often people in uniform, they're not attending, they're actually helping. So it's a little bit of a buffer 
of sorts for many things. Um, in other countries, sometimes they brought in military forces and it's usually a huge thing because it means something that they have to bring in the military. Fast yeah. quite normal, right? We have this, let's say, workforce of sorts of an organization that is available for certain tasks and it's used as a buffer. It's not that they have a, a, a continuous task. Like the system in Germany also where you could opt in for military or social services. And I would be a proponent for that, doing that in Switzerland too. As I said at the beginning, what the beauty is of our military is everybody wears the same uniform. So you can't tell who is who of what means or what kind of profession, what kind of background they have. They bring everybody together and mix them up from all the regions and all sort of parts of society. And you can't, it's, you can get out of it if you want to, but they make it expensive, very swiftly. They make it expensive if you don't want to, to do it. Expense to Switzerland? No, you're, you can't be serious. <laughs> it's, you're not paying, so sort of, they're not ma making you pay a penalty or they, sure. it's, if you don't really want to do it, they basically say, go ahead. But for the next 15 years, you're going to pay tax based on your salary on it. So if you're, if you're trying to get out of this, um, it's going to be, it's going to cost you some amount to the means that you have, right? Yeah. Same thing, sort of side note, same thing when you get a, a driving ticket here in Switzerland. After a certain, at a certain level of infriction, is it infriction? Uh, the, after a certain level of what you do, right? Uh, the, yes. The small things yeah. are fine. They're all infraction, I think, I think. It wouldn't be a word we'd use here, but I think in the state well, we use infraction, I think. Yeah. Word. So yeah. If you go beyond a certain speed limit or something, it's that your ticket is based on your income. So that, yeah. that puts everybody again on an yeah. equal playing field in a way. Yeah. Fin Finland have that as well. I lived in Finland for a while and they had the, it was a percentage of your salary, which is, I think it's a great thing because to somebody who's a millionaire, a speeding ticket is nothing. nothing. Yeah. We, we got a couple of them over here, sort of billionaires that would park their cars wherever they wanted and yeah. drive as fast as they wanted. So it, every six months or so in the newspapers, they basically advertise, okay, this Ferrari driver pays 300K for his speeding. Ouch. Ouch. Tell me, what do you like to do when you're free time to relax? I do love to go outside, whether it's raining or snowing or whatever the weather is. Love to walk. I live close to the forest, so that, that helps mm. me decompress. I often do that also in the morning, just to mm. start it into the day. I enjoy, I enjoy reading different perspectives. I hate to read sales books, to be honest. It just make, keeps me thinking about the same thing that I already think about throughout the day. Yeah, uh, I can only read those when I'm like on vacation where yeah. I have three, four days of nothing and then, then it's the right time for these sales books. But otherwise I enjoy going really random. Yeah. Most sales books are rubbish anyway. <laughs> they're just, I say that, I'm sorry, that's probably unfair, but I rarely get through them because they're just saying the same thing. They're not saying anything new. Most of them are articles that are just padded out so somebody can call themselves an author. That's true. But, that's, but there are some great ones and it's figuring out which ones are which. That's the thing. So you like to go outdoors walking. What would you do, Rico? What career would you have done if you were not doing what you're doing currently? As a profession or as a hobby? Just No, it could be a hobby that you have. That it's a, just a passion project, that you'd, but you'd love to do it full time. Gotcha. I think in many ways, I'd say in creating new products with a group of smart people, interesting people, inspiring people, mm. I think that would be the most fulfilling, fulfilling side on side of the, next to what I'm doing today. 
Okay. It comes back to what he said before, right? Walking throughout life and seeing things that mm. could be done or interesting new business model that come about just based on what social trends or consumer trends currently meander to. So that I feel like this is always giving me a boost in inspiration and boosting my passion that sort of diving into a new product, new business model or something like that. Thinking yeah. through starting from fresh, starting from scratch. Yeah. Would you then describe yourself as a creative type? Definitely. Yeah. Extremely. I always have to, as much throughout the day, to ma make sure that I focus on the things that need to be done first before yeah, I let myself, yeah, before I let you myself go crazy. If I have some, a creative task, I do it last. I try to do it last because I gotcha. spend then hours and hours on it. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. No, that's why I was asking. Cause it's, I find that it's so easy to get distracted when it's something that is creative and you're lost in it. Everything else just goes out the window. And th that's where I wanted to ask you about, do you have any tips for people like that? Cause I'm like that in terms of how you manage to stay focused. And I think one of the things you just said is if it's a creative thing, put it at the end rather than at the start. Yeah, or organize yourself and stick to it, right? For, we have so many distractions throughout the day at the moment. Yeah. It's so easy to just let your brain do what it does best, so yeah. act like a puppy and just basically get distracted later right and left. Um, I, I would recommend a couple of things. And again, this is really very individual, like sleep patterns are. Try to find things that help you focus. So it could be meditation, could be go for a walk, could be just to take some time off all your screen screens and technology. I spent a, a while in a retreat where I had to basically give up technology and re talking, reading, and doing pretty much anything for 10 days. And I realized the power of doing nothing for just five or 10 minutes. And I think that's something I do often nowadays too. If I only have 10 minutes left before another call, um, you can burn this 10 minutes up super easily by just opening your email or opening your Slack or yeah. opening anything uh, around you. The best thing is actually stepping outside, sitting on a chair and watching, looking at a tree. Believe me, that 10 minutes today, it feels like half an hour. And it really helps you just focus down again. You can, if you want to, can start thinking about the next meeting, depending a little bit on that. And, and that helped me structure, just limiting a little bit of creativity aside from putting, creating spaces where you can be creative. So that could be a yeah. task and you slot it in from two to five or two to three, depending on the size. It's a form of uh, mental nap is what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And what helped me, what helps me extremely to think, not the creative process with your hands when you're building something on your laptop, but rather the creative process of ideation or going through something where you really need to think about it is the walk or um, even better my for me to force me is to swim. I don't have any fancy headset that works in the water. I If you're swimming in the water, uh, underwater, there's nothing else that you can do but swim and think. Right. Yeah. You, when you walk, your phone is nearby. You could end up listening to a podcast and let yourself, let yourself distract, being distracted by something, something yeah. else. Forcing myself is, I think, one of the most effective methods. No, I'll, that's great. Actually, you've inspired me now because I'm looking down at something that was distracting me earlier that I wanted to play with, but now I'm going to put it at the end of the day. I got this yesterday. <laughs> for people listening to this, it's a, a Roliflex twin lens reflex. It's a 1959. I just love the mechanics of these things. Beautiful piece. I would get lost in that and play with that. And 
Oh yeah, you could spend hours on it for sure. Oh, I could, I could for sure, yeah. But it's an upgrade from spending hours on Facebook or that kind of thing. It's certainly better than that. I'm conscious of time, Rico. Two very quick last questions before I let you go. Desert island. You're going to be marooned on a desert island. You don't know if you're ever going to be rescued again. What one thing would you take? It cannot be a person. Long silence. I would say my Spotify account. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. They can have that. Could, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's going back to being distracted, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, but I'm pretty sure there's a lot of. Too. Yeah. But it's, it's, the silence is great, but the silence is great because it's a release. If you had silence all the time, I think you would crave, what's the word I'm looking for? Not inspiration, but you crave a sense of stimulus. So like everything else is balanced. All right. Final question, Rico is when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of that to be? It's <laughs> a very good question. I do not think that the, that the book would be really worthwhile to read, except for maybe my family. And I would say for my family, it should basically just be around the topic of be very honest to yourself, what do you do? And if you do it, do it with a passion and follow it. So around that topic, maybe it's interesting for other people to read, but that's yeah. what I try to teach my kids. So be true to yourself. Is that the mm. theme? Got it. Yeah. Definitely. I like that. Good stuff. Big go wider. So thank you so much for being my guest today on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. It's a lot of fun. Thanks so much.